Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer Choice Radio broadcasting to you on 106.7 The Big Talker FM. I'm your co-host David Clement, flying solo this week as my colleague Yael is on vacation. Lucky him. It has been an interesting week in the news. We have a great interview lined up for this week's program. Uh, a little later on the program, I'll be chatting with South African parliamentarian Willie O'Comp about South Africa's decision to ban the sale of alcohol and tobacco during the pandemic. Yes, you heard me right. South Africa has brought back prohibition. Uh, a sad day for consumers indeed. But before we get to that interview, um, there are some uh, new developments that I think are worth noting. Um, some of them a little more positive, which hopefully can cheer up uh, your day in light of everything that's going on in the world. Um, the first big one that, that rolled across my desk was a new development in cancer screening. Um, so a, a company, I believe the company was called Grail, uh, was originally doing prenatal testing. So the type of tests that uh, pregnant women use to... Uh, check for certain genetic disorders, um, and uh, they they stumbled upon or they found that this test, this new test, was particularly useful in identifying various cancers. Um, and so it's essentially a, D, a DNA screening test that looks at millions of DNA fragments and can find cancer uh, in stage one or sooner. Um, and the reason why that is important is because it's actually finding cancer prior to symptoms showing themselves. And so it, it has a immense uh, possibility to really change the way in which we find and, and treat cancer. Right now, they're estimating that um, it, that it can, can find in advance roughly half of all cancers, uh, the cost of the test now is is quite expensive. It's about a thousand dollars. However, it is expected that if the company can scale, um, you it could be as low as one hundred dollars. And so, just imagine the usefulness of of a hundred dollar screening test that's that could be done, let's say, annually um, to to test for pre pre symptom cancer. Um, for many cancers, the ability to defeat the disease um, rests on how soon you catch it. And so this could really be a huge game changer. So some positive news there um, for anyone who, who's ever had cancer impact their lives or the lives of their families. Um, on a different note, the New York Times looks like it is imploding again. Um, we will play a clip that kind of highlights what's going on, and uh, we'll take it from there. So, Jamie, play the clip. A major resignation now out of the New York Times. This is a big one. The now former opinion editor, Barry Weiss, leaving the paper after claiming she was bullied by her colleagues. Her scathing resignation letter reads in part, quote, They have called me a Nazi and a racist. My work and my character are openly demeaned on company-wide Slack channels where masterhead editors regularly weigh in. Masthead, excuse me for that. 
There, some co-workers insist, I need to be rooted out as if this company is to be a truly inclusive one. Weiss has been the subject of scrutiny since members of the Time staff attacked the editorial team's decision to publish a column by Senator Tom Cotton. Cotton's editorial last month arguing in favor of using military force to stop violent protest. Uh and so, yeah, obviously there is trouble brewing at the New York Times. Um, Barry Weiss has, uh, has resigned. Add her to the list uh, of folks who have been pushed out or have left the New York Times. And, I mean, the big thing for me is... Uh, this is a I, I don't view this as a problem uh, in the way in which many people do. A lot of people will, I think, whine about conservative voices being suppressed. But I actually think that the concerning part of this is that it creates an echo chamber and it really erodes the marketplace of ideas, which is supposed to be um, the purpose of the press in the United States. And so Echo chambers are problematic. When you have one of the most prominent newspapers in the world become an echo chamber, we have a big problem. And of course, they're a private business. I mean, they can do as they please. But I think this is a worrying trend um, nonetheless. And uh, I think it's it's just a sad thing to see where you have, uh, you have bright, intelligent people um, across the, the political spectrum uh, out a newspaper and you start to see that slowly whittled away so that there's kind of one view and one voice. Um, from the press side, I mean, this is an issue because the press serves or supposed to serve an important function in our society. Um, but it's also from a consumer side, it just makes the New York Times uh, a little less attractive if, if that's what you're looking for. Um, if you're looking for more of that marketplace of ideas uh, type approach. So, Troubling stuff at the New York Times. Uh, Seattle is at it again. Um, they are at it again. Uh, they have added uh, a tax called the Jumpstart Tax. Uh, it's a clever name for a tax. It's added taxation on businesses with payroll over uh, $7 million, uh, which is really just middle market companies. Um, it's added taxation on salaries at those companies of over $150,000. And I think the big thing that is that really makes me wonder what's going on in Seattle is why this is the right time to add on additional business taxes. Uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're coming off or we could be coming off the heels of a hundred year pandemic. Uh, we're certainly not out of the woods now, but it's possible that we could in a matter of a few months be hopefully on the path forward. Um, the impact on businesses, I think, I don't even think you can truly state the impact this is going to have on business. And here we have Seattle passing an additional tax, which makes it harder for these middle market companies to do business, to stay profitable, um, and, and to, to really kind of provide jobs and prosper. And not only is it problematic because it's, I think, the wrong time to be adding in, um, adding new taxes that make it harder to be profitable, 
It's also a bad time given the competitiveness of diff- different tax jurisdictions. Um, it, it wouldn't take much for a company uh, who would be hit by this tax to simply move to a different jurisdiction, whether that be outside of Seattle or outside of the state, where they maybe have better uh, better treatment or more exemptions or a, a lower tax burden. I know that this is pretty much what's happening with um, with Tesla and their potential to move to Texas. Um, all sorts of discussions about what the, what their tax rates will look like and how much money the company can eventually save. And so I think the more you uh, the more you add taxes to uh, success, which is essentially what um, this jumpstart tax is, the harder it is for these companies to stay afloat, and the more likely or the easier it is for them to move on to another jurisdiction. Um, so that is a, that's a very troubling development. Um, hopefully this will be overturned as their last attempt to do a tax like this was, um, but uh, it may be wishful thinking um, at this time. I mean, it's also pretty weird uh, that this seems to be their focus when uh, Seattle, for anyone who's followed the news of the pandemic, um, I mean, it's it's been pretty clear that they have other issues to focus on uh, and other issues to um, focus their the attention of government on. I mean, there was an entire block or several blocks of the city that were essentially annexed by protesters and uh, all sorts of issues with that and questions of police budgets. And it just seems like um, Seattle City Council may have their priorities uh, upside down in terms of what they do or don't want to do. And then on the priorities being upside down, unfortunately, Ontario has backtracked on cannabis delivery and curbside pickup, which is a real shame. This is something that the Consumer Choice Center was uh, heavily involved in, uh, in arguing for cannabis stores to be allowed to offer delivery and curbside pickup. Um, For us, it was a no-brainer. It's a legal product. It should be uh, as consumer-friendly as possible. Uh, Unfortunately, the government is really backtracking and protecting its government monopoly on, uh, on delivery, which is, I mean, the only two groups who benefit from this decision is the province because they own the monopoly on uh, cannabis delivery and the black market because those black market uh, dealers have long offered delivery options that are quite fast and this makes it easier for them to outcompete legal retailers and so a huge problem there Um, hopefully we can get back at the table with the with the ford government and uh give their head a shake, uh, so to say, and talk some sense back into the premier's office so that they can move forward uh, with their changes in a consumer-friendly way, um, which is really has been part of the mantra of the Ontario government under uh, Premier Doug Ford. In many instances, they've put consumers first. They're fighting a uh, an alcohol monopoly with the beer store, pushing for beer uh, beer, wine, beer and wine to be added to 
Ontario convenience stores, uh, expanding, they've expanded the amount of grocery stores who can sell alcohol. So on the alcohol front, they've made all of these tremendous steps forward. And yet when it comes to cannabis, there is this huge step backwards. And I would argue that it's maybe even more important when it comes to cannabis policy because there are viable illegal alternatives that exist to fill the void uh, in a way that really isn't there for alcohol. We don't have in Ontario widespread uh, moonshine or bootleg uh, alcohol that fills the void. However, we do have uh, we do have lots of um, of black market uh, groups or dealers or uh, however you want to frame them, folks who are selling. Uh, illicit product there are there is a long list of those people uh, willing and able to fill the void that the government has created Um, so big issue there Um, but I won't keep you from our guest much longer Uh, our guest this week is as I said South African parliamentarian Willie O'Comp a wide-ranging interview on the ins and outs of prohibition, the political landscape in South Africa. Um, We talked about what works and what doesn't. Um, We talked about the drought that's going on. So um, a bit of a different different tune for for folks uh, listening to the program because it is more of an international scope, but a uh, fantastic interview nonetheless. So we will uh, roll to Jamie to play that clip. All right, I'm very excited to introduce our guest for this week's show. Today's guest is South African parliamentarian Willie O'Comp. Willie is a member of South Africa's Democratic Alliance and is currently an elected representative in the National Council of Provinces representing the Northern Cape. Willie O'Comp, welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be with you guys, and I hope everything is fine and well there with you in Canada and all your listeners all over the world. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, I appreciate that. Now, before we get started in talking about prohibition and and the policies of what's going on in South Africa, can you give our listeners uh, a brief history of the Democratic Alliance and the party that you represent and where it sits on the political spectrum? Because many, if they're like myself, maybe aren't aware of what the South African political uh, system looks like or what the, the political spectrum looks like. Sure. David, the Democratic Alliance this year is celebrating its 20th year as the Democratic Party or the Democratic Alliance. But this Democratic Alliance grew out of the Progressive Party. Uh, Previously, it it came for a very long period of time in the old regime under the apartheid South Africa, where the Democratic Alliance, at that stage, the Progressive Party, have fought against apartheid to get apartheid abolished. As I said, in, in now, today, we are 20 years old. <coughs> Sorry. And uh, we are currently the main opposition party in South Africa, uh, the largest party apart from the African National Congress, the ANC, that is the ruling party. We've got uh, just more than 20% of the total amount of votes in South Africa. And our country is divided in nine provinces. The Western Cape province, where the city of Cape Town is situated, the Western Cape province, that province we are currently governing. Uh, Actually, we have been governing that province for quite an amount of years now. 
And in the Western Cape, the Democratic Alliance has got 52% of the total amount of votes in, in uh, the Western Cape, where the ANC there has got 31%. Then the Gauteng province, which is the province in which our capital, Pretoria, is situated, there the ANC has got 50% and the Democratic Alliance 27%. The other 23% uh, is made out of uh, other opposition parties. And we, have, we were very close to taking over the Gauteng province as well. In actual fact, it was one or two seats that made the difference there. So we are very hopeful for the future and, and uh, obviously positive in the lookout of the DA and where we are positioned currently in South Africa. And I think if we look at what happened with this COVID-19 pandemic, it showed again the inability of this ANC to govern. And if you compare the provinces, the province where the Democratic Alliance is in government, and you compare that with the eight other provinces where the Democratic Alliance is not in government, where the ANC governs, it is a difference of day and night with each other, of how this province was prepared for this virus. And well, nobody was prepared, but how we could have adjusted much more easily, how we have uh, transformed convention centers into hospitals. Not only a bed that you bought at a furniture shop and you put it in a hall and now you say it's a hospital, but beds with ventilators and uh, oxygen uh, equipment. So it, it is truly a target of us to not only govern the Western Cape, but to start to govern more provinces and in doing so show the people on the ground that we are a party that is fit for government and obviously that we are a much better choice for government than the ANC that has now been in government for 26 years and has really governed this country into the ground. It is not the ANC of Nelson Mandela anymore. It is a pity. Uh, we all had a huge amount of respect for him, but it is not the same party anymore. It, it is a party where the revolutionists within the ANC took over and capitalism is but a dream. In, it, it is absolutely turning into a socialist communist setup and the people of South Africa will not be able to, to withstand that. And so in, would it be a fair characterization to say from your view that the, the ANC is maybe far left or socialist, whereas the Democrat Alliance is more of a centrist party where you have both center right and, and liberal, not in the classical sense, but liberal in the modern sense, uh, politicians together as like the, the middle, or do you fall on the center left or the center right? David, I think if you are a true liberal party, there are space for a lot of people within your party. Mm -hmm. We are a true liberal party. That is what the Democratic Alliance is. We are not a socialist party and for sure not a communist party. And we are most certainly not a far right party. We are a liberal party in the modern sense of the word. And if you are a liberal, liberal party, you must be able to say, I am willing to fight to the nail for freedom of speech. But in the same sentence, you must also say, I'm willing to fight tooth of nail for the freedom of speech of somebody that differs from me because he's got that right of freedom of speech. I, I think a lot of people interpret liberalism totally wrong today. I am a conservative person when it comes to my family, when it comes to my faith, my religion. And in a liberal party, there is place for conservatism. There is place for a lot of opinions. But the fact of the matter is that we are a liberal party in every sense of the word, and we will fight tooth and nail to kick communism on the back foot and get it out here. We as a country cannot survive 
And I mean, everywhere in the world, we have seen that. We've got a government that on a lot of occasions in the past used the simple example of Venezuela. And I think time caught up with them and we are now in a position to tell the people on ground level, this is what happened to Venezuela. This is what happened to our northern neighbors, Zimbabwe. You cannot think that due to the fact that you've got a lot of poor people in a country, you've got to implement a socialist policy in order to look after those people. You've got to implement proper capitalist uh, and, and, and democratic principles in order for you to create jobs and to create an environment that is conducive for investment so that you can create even more jobs. That is the problem that we've got in South Africa at the moment is we've got a government that is so focused on black economical empowerment. It's actually one of the principles that they've adopted and it is one of the things that is practiced on a daily basis in South Africa. Uh, and instead of creating an environment where you can get the people from the outside to come and invest in your country and uh, put money into your country so that you can develop it. They've got this black economical empowerment thing that they are driving and that is based on a socialist system and they are constantly trying to uh, accuse white monopolist capital for their own failures. And there is no such thing as white monopolist capital in South Africa at the moment anymore. And I'm saying that because of the fact that we have integrated so well over the last 26 years that uh, for, for me, it's sure there's a lot of differences that still needs to be addressed. There's poverty that came from the apartheid system that it must be addressed, but it must be addressed in the correct manner. You cannot address those things by applying socialist and communist principles that this ANC government is doing. It is unacceptable mm -hmm. and worldwide we've seen over many years that it does not work. Yeah, and that's that's one thing as a as an outsider observing South Africa is it, it it is a country that could have so much potential in terms of its impact on the world stage and its contributions to the economy. It just needs to open itself up to the world in that sense. And so I, I totally uh, agree with what you're saying um, in regards to openness um, and and the the principles of both democratic principles and open markets because realistically that's what's going to um, that's what's going to create lasting prosperity you you highlight um, whether we call it socialist or communist or just big government statism however we frame it you, you've, you've spoken a bit about control um, which really is is part of the reason why I wanted to chat with you because um, during the pandemic the South African government uh, from my perspective, has done the unthinkable um, in prohibiting the sale of both alcohol and tobacco products. So I wanted to ask you, what was the government's justification for basically recreating prohibition? And what is your take on those policies? David, if, if you look at what the ANC has done and how they have handled this whole pandemic that we are sitting with, there were such a lot of decisions that they've made that I cannot justify. And, and I think, well, nobody can. And they are battling to justify it. The, our Minister of Corporate Governance, Mkosazana Tlamini Zuma, which was, was the main rival against our President, President Ramaphosa, for the leadership position of the ANC. Uh, she came way back in, on the 25th of April this year. She said that this pandemic is the ideal platform to implement, in her words, long overdue social policies. 
I had a problem with that, and I stated that in Parliament, that you cannot use a pandemic to implement your social policy. You've got to use all measures available to save people's lives. She went further and she said that she quoted Amilcar Cabral, who was a revolutionary fighter in Guinea-Bissau, and he had the doctrine of class suicide. She went as far to say that if we have to have a class to commit suicide in South Africa, meaning the middle class, then we must do that. And, and the reason that she said it is that everybody can be on a lower level and you can then implement socialist, your socialist agenda. Now, I, I'm saying this as a background for what is going on in South Africa. You've got a government that must handle a pandemic, but instead of handling the pandemic, they are driving their own political agendas. And, and that is why you had things like the prohibition or the ban on alcohol and tobacco sales. <clears throat> You, you've got big companies that obviously British American Tobacco is, is one of our biggest uh, cigarette companies in the country. And for the last, well, 111 days now, they weren't allowed to sell one single cigarette. But I can promise you, out of the 11 million smokers in South Africa, there has statistically not been a million of them that quit smoking during this pandemic. So there are 10 million people in South Africa currently still buying cigarettes illegally on the black market on a daily basis. Now, it's, it's, if you come to think of it and you listen to what our Minister of Corporate Governance said, in her own words, she said that the fact that we are losing a lot of tax on the fact that we can't sell cigarettes is not a big hamper to our economy because our economy is being stimulated by the illegal trade in cigarettes. I mean, that is an absolute absurd statement. When I heard it, I could not believe that she said it, but it is what she said. Now, unfortunately for our government or for our people in our, in our country, we've got a government that is hampered with corruption. And uh, the, the son of Mrs. Mkosazana Dlamini Zuma is one of the owners of a company that manufactures cigarettes. And it is in big competition at this moment with, well, with all the other illegal cigarettes on the market. But it, it lets you think, you are wondering why this prohibition? We, we had alcohol banned in the beginning. Then about a month ago, they re-allowed the sale of alcohol. And four or five nights ago, our president came on TV and he said that with immediate effect from Sunday night, the sale of alcohol is prohibited again. And, and the reason that he gave is that hospitals are becoming too full. Uh, people are driving under the influence and people can't handle the liquor, et cetera, et cetera. I think that is a huge finger pointing acquisition to make against the people of a country, against people that has got the freedom of choice. And if you look at what the reasons were, what they gave us in the beginning for this lockdown, is that they've got to get a preparedness and a readiness for our hospitals and our medical uh, systems, which we totally agree with. And, and in the beginning, when this lockdown was announced, we were fully behind our presence. And we, we also agreed that it was the right thing to do. You had to do that in order to get yourself prepared. But in this time, they did not prepare themselves. This created an opportunity for the ANC to again do a lot of things that they could have enriched their own pockets with. There are two field hospitals currently in South Africa that has been developed throughout this whole time. The one is in the Western Cape where we are in government, the Democratic Alliance, 
and the other one is a privately uh, built uh, field hospital. So government itself has not completed one successful field hospital in this time. So my, my problem with this prohibition on, let's, let's start with the alcohol prohibition, is to come in to say that we must stop the sale of alcohol because people are flooding the hospitals. Whereas you had the uh, duty upon yourself as government to have hospitals and your medical system in order. That is not right. You cannot blame the people for your failures. And this is what's happening in South Africa. The whole thing about the prohibition on tobacco is just totally absurd. Uh, there are no factual medical proof that if you smoke, you've got a larger chance of contracting COVID. There are absolutely none. And, and the mere fact that you've got your minister that come out and says that she knows the people are still smoking, but luckily the trade in illegal tobacco is stimulating the economy, is an acknowledgement from her side that the ban on smoking is not necessary. She admits that people are still smoking, and she praises the fact that it stimulates the economy. It's absurd, and, and we think that they should really, mm -hmm. with immediate effect, reopen the sale of tobacco and of, of alcohol. That is on the personal level with regards to the usage thereof. Mm -hmm. But David, we've got to look at something else. We've got an unemployment figure in South Africa that during this COVID pandemic has risen to 40%. 40% of the people in our country is unemployed. So you've got to, and I've started this interview by saying you've got to create an environment that is conducive for investment and for growth and job security and job creation. By doing this prohibition on alcohol and on tobacco, there's a huge amount of people that will lose their jobs. Something that we cannot afford in our country. We need to create jobs and not do things that will lead to a further increase in uh, unemployment figures. We've got a social development department that must look after people that are not able to look after themselves. They are overburdened as it is. And to come and just increase and increase on the unemployment levels will put an even further burden on them. They can't carry the burden as it is, but the burden of unemployed people are rising and it needs to be stopped. Yeah, that's, that's an important point because it's one thing, I mean, it's, in, it's incredibly paternalistic for the government to ban with the stroke of a pen, otherwise legal products, but you raise a very important point. There's also the economic impact that that has in terms of the legal businesses that sell these, the bars, the restaurants, the stores that sell tobacco products or vaping products and things like that. And I think another thing that really struck me in this, um, when I was looking at, at the policies that were passed is that if you want to have conversations about alcohol or tobacco products and their use and abuse, I think that that's perfectly fine under the democratic principles that define government. If, if the president were to want to have a conversation about what is or isn't appropriate about to, uh, alcohol regulation or tobacco regulation, I think that that's legitimate for governments to do, but you're supposed to do that in the democratic context of open debate, of elected representatives representing their constituents. It seems really uncomfortable, uh, at least from an outsider's perspective, to just see uh, at the stroke of a pen, legal products be, be criminalized and millions of consumers be criminalized and, and 
I mean, I know that in doing a little bit of research, and maybe you can um, comment on this as well. So we know that the illegal tobacco trade has flourished under the ban. Um, what have we seen for alcohol? Have there been examples where people are making moonshine or bootleg alcohol? Are people getting sick? Um, has it led to any violence in terms of the consequences of, I mean, illegal markets are always outside of the law, so there are increased risks. Have we seen the same thing with, with alcohol prohibition uh, when it was illegal and now that it is illegal again? Well, it, it was illegal in the beginning, then they made the sale legal, and they have now made an about to, so it is illegal again. But yeah, David, you are right. There are a lot of sales on the black market, and you have seen people that, that manufactured their own liquor, their, their own moonshine, or whatever you call it. In South Africa, we call it mampur. It's, it's a typical South African word. But yeah, people, people are manufacturing it, and there were several cases of people that became sick. People died due to the fact that they are all of a sudden manufacturing something that they have never done in the past and, and they don't have the know-how of how to do it in a safe way and people have died. You, you sit with another problem with regards to both alcohol and tobacco prohibitions. And that is the fact that you have got people that are totally reliant on alcohol. You've got your alcoholics. And to just have them all of a sudden stop drinking without having psychological support and and psychologist mm -hmm. or a person that assists them in this it it will and it has led to suicides we we are know of several facts where that happened and the same with tobacco to all of a sudden just tell people now you've got to stop smoking it is extremely difficult and mm -hmm. any smokers will tell you that it's to just put down your cigarettes or not being able to buy cigarettes is putting you under a huge amount of strain and that seen against the backdrop of all the stress that this COVID pandemic has brought in itself. Yeah. To not be able to do some stuff that you are uh, used to or that you are reliant upon, like having a cigarette. It's, it's really bordering on cruelty. I, I believe it's cruel to somebody to just do that. Yeah, and it, it, that you raised that point, and it's an important distinction when I think about how, um, how Canadian provinces treated that question because obviously there were some people who were pushing for the alcohol stores to be closed. Um, however, there was pushback, um, surprisingly, from public health officials who said you can't force people into withdrawal and not expect that there are going to be consequences. And I think that that was a very nuanced and important point to make because, I mean, we know that there are people who are dependent or addicted. That is tragic. We don't want them to be dependent or addicted to, let's say, alcohol. And But we also realize that if you force them um, with no support, essentially no support to go into withdrawal, you're creating a recipe for some really bad public health outcomes. And what I also saw in terms of a difference, uh, my, one of our South African colleagues and I wrote a, uh, an op-ed for the Daily Maverick on this, uh, was there was a sense of respect for adults in many other countries where they maybe evaluated the prospect of a ban for products like this, but at the end of the day said, look, these are legal products and we're talking about adults and we can't go that, we, we, we can't go that far, even if we would want to, or even if we would want to from a public health perspective, it's just not fair and it's just not right. Were there any voices beyond obviously folks like yourself in the Democratic Alliance were there other voices 
on the side of uh, being against prohibition? Was there any opposition within the ANC or any internal conversation? Or was this really just something that was decided at a whim and, and then forced upon the South African people? David, that is a very important question. And I, I want to start by saying that when this lockdown in South Africa was announced by our president, he said to the whole of the country that we must stand together, we must take hands, and we must fight this pandemic together, which we fully agree with. But to then turn around where you have asked people to work together and to make plans together, but not to make use of the knowledge and the expertise within your own country, not only on a political level, but on a business level and on a medical level, that is wrong. Our president and this ANC government have not consulted properly with the people. They have most certainly not consulted properly with us as the main opposition party in this country. We are sitting in front of the TVs also waiting to hear what the president is going to say without having any say in, the, in that. And, and, and that, is, that is wrong. You, there's a huge amount of other companies and, and opinion makers in this country and all over the world that agree with what we as a democratic alliance is saying. There's a lot of examples, David, that I can give you of absolute irrational thinking from this government mm. with regards to what they have implemented in, in, in this lockdown. You can, for example, when the sale of alcohol was allowed, you could go to a restaurant, but you could not buy a beer. You can buy a, a soda or whatever, but you could not buy a beer. That is absolutely irrational. We are still at this moment not allowed to visit family or friends but you are allowed to put 15 people in a taxi and, and drive with them wherever you want to. You, you, you were at a certain stage not allowed to visit beaches. You could not go to a beach in South Africa where you've got vast open space, etc. And, and you were not allowed to do that. The, the decisions that was, were made by this government was really, it was, you could see that there's no thinking behind it, apart from the fact that they want to put their foot down and force their will upon the people. And that is what you see when you are working with a communist socialist regime. And, and this is what our country is becoming, is, is gradually becoming. It's, it's becoming a regime where they want to enforce their will upon the people without looking at what the will or the decisions are that, as you rightly said, are being made by adults. Why? can't a government trust these people? Why must you force them to not drink alcohol? Because you don't trust them on how they are going to handle themselves with alcohol? That's a vote of no confidence from this president and this government in the people of South Africa, and we cannot have that. They will give a vote of no confidence in us, and I promise you it will bear the brunt on them in the next election they are at this moment trying to see whether they can maybe extend our municipal elections that must happen next year. There's a lot of talk in our country going on. And I can tell you one thing, one of the reasons for that is the fact that this ANC government is so afraid of having an election at this stage because it will be a referendum on their ability on how they've handled this COVID pandemic. And they have failed this test, I can promise you that. Yeah, it'll certainly be interesting. I think governments around the world are going to face uh, a reckoning, uh, for lack of a better word, if 
if their citizens feel that they have not, uh, one, prepared for the pandemic properly, two, handled the pandemic properly as it unfolded, and three, and this brings me to my next question, planned for how to aid the country in recovering. And that's what I want to ask you now is not that COVID-19 is behind us, still very much a serious threat, and there are all sorts of concerns, and we're kind of globally anxiously waiting for a cure or a vaccine or some development that will, that will help us. But what, would, what, would, um, what is your view on what South Africa should do in the recovery process? How should South Africa change its policy decisions as we move away from COVID-19, whenever that is? David, in South Africa, we've already had huge problems before COVID-19 were upon us. We've got, as I mentioned earlier on, we've got an unemployment figure that is rising and is currently standing at approximately 40%. Now, you can just imagine if you've got a 40% unemployment figure, what the social effects on a society is when you are sitting with that. You are sitting with people that are regularly going hungry. You will have a rise in crime. So we have, from the beginning, as a democratic alliance said, that we must save lives as well as livelihoods. It does not help us if we are trying our best to just save lives and everything or every life must be saved. And in the process, you are killing a lot of livelihoods because that will just make the original problems of poverty that we have, it will make those problems bigger. It will not go away if we save lives. You will have even more people that will be dying and they will not be dying of COVID. They will be dying of hunger. And that is what we are sitting with in this country. So answer your question with regard to what is required to, for us to get this country back on track. And I've said it on numerous times during this interview is we've got to create an environment where investments is attracted to our country. We need money to be invested in our mineral rich and our uh, country that's got so much potential, not only with minerals, but with uh, tourism. There's, We've got an amazing country and as has been shown in the past, we can have an economy that attracts investment. The moment that you have got investment, you are able to have growth and growth will lead to job creation. Job creation, um, I'm, I don't want to give you a one, a one on social development, but job creation means that you will have less crime you will have a smaller burden on your social system in government. We are handing out food parcels to people that are not able to feed themselves anymore. And, and I think it is absolutely important that whilst we are saving lives, we must create an environment where the life that you've saved must be able to live the life that that person would like to live and not a life of poverty. We must create a system where they can look after themselves and where our country can grow on the right path. So uh, on that note, in terms of, of poverty, um, and this is, will be more of a statement. I, I'd, I'd like to know if my assessment is accurate. Um, I would assume that based on South Africa's history, and, and you alluded to this, there are maybe racial disparities in terms of income and poverty and the groups who experience poverty at higher rates What's always struck me as quite confusing um, is I can understand the inclination for governments to, to want to correct for 
historical injustices. But from my view, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, from my view, the people who suffer the most from these low growth or no growth political policies, from big government basically keeping out foreign investment, are the people who have always been historically marginalized. And so it always seems to me to be so strange that, yes, you can want to correct for the, the kind of ugly history of apartheid. I totally agree, and I'm on board with that. But at the same time, if you suffocate the economy, it's those folks who were marginalized before who suffer the worst now. Um, I don't know if that's a correct assessment. I'm, like I said, very much an outsider to South Africa. So I'd love to hear your thoughts just to, to know if that is how you see um, the consequences of bad policy. Well, David, it's, you say that you're an outsider, but you are describing it exactly as an insider would. You are 100% correct in, in what you said there. Apartheid was wrong. Things were done against people in this country that was wrong. And we have had 26 years of a new government, of a new democracy in this country, which we all support. And we know that there's a lot of wrongs of the past that must be corrected. But there's an old saying that says that you two wrongs don't make a right. And, and that is where we are at this stage. You cannot correct the wrongs of the past by implementing things that will not help them. To say to a person, you can have this tender to build this road because you are a black person and we need to lift you up. That is not right. In the first place, that person might not know how to build that road. There will be a, a huge opportunity for corruption to thrive again. And at the end of the day, whoever must use that road will not have that road to, to travel on. I'm not saying that all black people can't build roads. We have got big black companies in this country, Com companies that have got huge expertise. We've got, we saw in this last 26 years that when we as a country, as a people take hands, whether you're white or black or colored or Indian, it doesn't matter. When we work together to create growth in this country, we can overcome anything. But to just say that you, you forget about growth and you forget about a, a, an environment conducive for investment and you just go for giving people uh, jobs without the viability of that job lasting. It will not work. You've got to create an environment of longevity where whatever you do will work on the long term. You've got to create an environment where you make it easy for people, especially black people that has been disadvantaged in the past. To start a business where you do skills development for that person and where you know and you assist him so that they can overcome the burdens of the past and become the big companies and the big giants of, giants of our country for the future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on, on the opportunity side, it, that seems to me um, like a no-brainer is that you have to, you have to be giving uh, everyone these, these opportunities to, to overcome kind of that historical burden. Uh, shifting away from COVID-19 and the pandemic, my understanding is that there are also some other very tragic things that are going on in South Africa right now, um, particularly a drought. Uh, I don't have much information about that, but I'd, I'd love to hear what's actually going on in terms of the, uh, uh, of the drought, what that means for South African citizens, and what the government can do to help 
uh, overcome some of those problems. David, even before we were facing this COVID-19 pandemic, we had the problem of a drought in our country. The Northern Cape province was declared a drought disaster area on the 7th or 8th of January this year already. And the rest of the country was declared a drought disaster area shortly thereafter. That was before we even had our first case of COVID. So you've got a country that is now battling this disaster of COVID. But even before that, we battled this drought that, well, has been in certain uh, parts of our country, been there now for seven years. Seven years where farmers in our country did not nearly have enough rain to uh, grow their crops or to uh, have grazing for the animals. Now, it, it again, it goes to the social fabric of who we as a country is. The moment that you are not looking after your farmers, and agriculture is one of the biggest sectors in our country, especially when it comes to job creation, the moment that you are not protecting your farmers, there's a few dominoes that will fall as a result of the fact that you did not do it. You will have food insecurity. And in a country like South Africa, with an unemployment rate as ours, it is extremely important to have food security. People cannot go hungry. The other thing is that people, farmers, will not be able to maintain their job levels or the amount of people that they employ because they just can't afford that anymore. Last year, to give you an example, the Department of Agriculture in the Northern Cape asked for 640 million rands. Uh, one rand is now about 16 rand 50 to the dollar, to give you an idea. But they asked for 640 million rands for drought relief to the farmers of the Northern Cape. This government gave them 30 million. Their own department asked for 640, this government gave them 30 million, which was, again, uh, there was such a lot of corruption on, with, with regards to that money. But yeah, we, we've got an extreme drought in our country at the moment. Farmers are selling out. They are not able to farm anymore. I have visited a lot of farmers in this country. I actually went on a tour uh, throughout the Northern Cape province, which is one of the hardest deep provinces, where I had farmers that told me that they haven't even got enough money to put fuel in their vehicles, to drive through their farms, to pick up carcasses of animals that has died. That is how serious this is. And uh, unfortunately, if you look at what happened with, with COVID and the uh, measures that has been put in, which is absolutely necessary to protect lives and livelihoods, it has not happened with our farmers. Our farmers is not nearly protected. There's actually a thing that we must explain to the listeners out there. We've got a drive from our ANC government that they want to expropriate land without compensation. In other words, they want to follow the Zimbabwe and the Venezuela model, especially Zimbabwe, our northern neighbor, where they take farms from white farmers and not paying them for that. So that creates an environment where your farmer is very insecure. It's very difficult for him to go to a bank to obtain a loan in order to invest in his farm or to uh, build out his farm. Where he does not know whether he has security of tenure on that land. And then you've got another problem with regards to our farmers, and that is the amount of farm attacks taking place in South Africa. We had, during 2019, there were 552 farm attacks in South Africa. 
that figure grew from a figure of 96 farm attacks in 2011 to 552 farm attacks in 2019. Now, if you look at having not being able or not willing to help your farmers in a time of drought on the one hand, secondly, uh, threatening them with expropriating their land without compensation on the other, and thirdly, not doing nearly enough to protect your farmers on the farms and the farm workers on those farms. That, that makes you think about the circle that they are trying to create. What is going on? Why aren't our farmers being protected with regards to money and availability of, of money to farm? Why aren't they protected with their lives? Isn't it because of the fact that they want to maybe scare our farmers away off the farms, which will be a terrible thing to do. Yeah. It, it, it makes you think, and a lot of people are making those accusations. Our, our farmers in this country are really feeling helpless and we need to do everything in our power to help them. If the farming community in this country is going down the drain, this country will be going down the drain. The farming community is the backbone of our country. Yeah, I, I don't have too much background knowledge on the situation in uh, in South Africa, but what's what's interesting is part of my own academic work is analyzing the failed policies of Zimbabwe, uh, particularly so that you're aware, I was the research assistant to the Canada Research Chair on Human Rights and was the lead researcher on a book about the right to food. And one of the state famines uh, that we analyzed was Zimbabwe, which was very much built on expropriation of land and the consequences of that and the famine that resulted, which was just horrific. And so it's certainly troubling. I, I really do hope that that South Africa does not go down uh, the Zimbabwe route because that was uh, just an absolute nightmare for everybody. Um, because as you said, I mean, as soon as it, having, ha having food insecurity um, is always a problem, but then having food insecurity with really, really high unemployment and economic uh, depression or recession because of COVID-19 sounds like uh, a recipe for disaster. So I hope that um, I hope that uh, that South Africa does not follow uh, Zimbabwe's path because it was it was certainly not beneficial for for anyone. Uh, in in kind of wrapping up the interview, what? Sorry, Dave, uh, can, I, can I just quickly come in then? Yep. Uh, you, you have said now that you've studied the situation that happened in Zimbabwe, mm -hmm. and I think there's a huge analogy that one can draw there. Zimbabwe did not do expropriation of land before they, as a country, were in trouble. The same with South Africa. There was no threats of expropriation of land. It happened when the policies and the implementation of the policies of the governing party has started to fail. The fact that they are now looking for different places on which they can do their campaigning. They know that they cannot go back to the electorate and say to them, Please vote for us. We are known for our good governance because they have failed. And that is exactly what happened in Zimbabwe as well. So what are they doing? They're going to the people and say, please vote for us. We will give you land. And, and, and that is what happened in Zimbabwe. And this, this is what's happening now. It, for me, is testimony to their own failures that they are now trying to do this. And I promise you, it will, as has happened in Zimbabwe, it will come back to bite the politicians in this country because the people will go hungry. Unemployment will rise, 
And it is something that the electorate in this country will not accept. And I hope that we can uh, show them when it comes to the next elections that this electorate will not uh, tolerate that anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very important, very important point there that, that this is used as an electoral strategy. Uh, it's yeah. not just bad policy, it's bad policy and it's sneaky politics because it's a way in which, um, a way in which otherwise unaccountable or suspect governments can kind of dangle a carrot to voters and saying that if you vote for us, you will get X. Um, so thank you very much, Willie, for joining us. I really appreciate your insights. Um, I hope that uh, you and, and the DA have continued success and uh, that you can help guide South Africa out of the pandemic and uh, put the country on the right track and, and, and really help build a more prosperous country for, for everyone there. And uh, we look forward to possibly having, having you on the show again. So thank you very much for joining us. David, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for allowing me to speak to people in other parts of the world that not necessarily are aware of what's going on in our country. I think it's important to make people aware so that we can get any assistance in, in working together as a nation to, for the benefit of this country. We, we started with this democracy in 1994 under the wonderful leadership of a principled man like uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela. And, and we would like to build on that, on the cornerstones <laughs> that has been laid down by him. Unfortunately, it will take a, a very hard effort and a fight from our side to manage that. But I can assure you, we will not let the people of South Africa down as a democratic alliance. We will stand up for the rights of freedom to choose, for the rights of every individual in the society. So thank you so much for the opportunity. And I look forward to talking to you again. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you very much. Uh, to Willie O'Comp for joining us on the program. Uh, a great guest. Um, we'll hope to have him back. A friend of the show, as we like to say. Uh, also, thank you all for joining me while I have flown solo um, without my colleague Yael. Uh, he will be back next week. And we have a exciting announcement about whom our guest will be. Uh, we will be interviewing the always insightful Bjorn Lomborg. Uh, Bjorn Lomborg is the uh, executive of the Copenhagen Consensus Center. If you are a longtime listener of the show, uh, he is someone we often bring up. Um, his approach to politics is different than uh, different than most. Uh, looks at looks at political issues from the lens of cost-benefit analysis and how we prioritize what government does. So a very analytical approach. Uh, for me personally, he's been probably one of the guiding lights in terms of my own political developments. I mean, I remember way back when I was a kid, um, early on in my kind of intellectual development, I had read one of his books and that was really what um, got me interested in politics in a meaningful way. So look for, looking forward to that interview. Uh, looking forward to having him on the program. And thank you for joining us for another week. We'll talk to you next week.